So back when I was in high school, I had braces. Big shocker, I know. I feel like everyone in my age range and demographic, regardless of the actual state of their teeth, was told at some point by a dentist or an orthodontist, you need braces. And I fell in this category. I didn't have great teeth, but overall my, feet, my teeth were fairly straight and fairly normal. I was blessed with overall pretty healthy genetics, and that included my teeth. However, I was also blessed with a grandfather who was willing and able to pay for both myself and my sister to have braces. And so uh, we wouldn't be, have to worry or be insecure about the state of our teeth and our mouths as we grew up. And as a lot of you also may know, I played soccer growing up, especially in high school, particularly as a goalkeeper. And when you're a goalie, your main goal is to sacrifice your body however possible to keep the ball out of the net. And a part of your body is your face. And I got really good at blocking the ball with my face. And so, while this probably wasn't great for my teeth and probably wasn't great for some concussions, this was a general predicament for my family members. They knew, all right, that's Jacob, that's what he's got to do, but he's also got a couple thousand dollars worth of metal in his mouth. And if that gets hit right, that could cause a lot of long-lasting damage to his teeth. And so because of this, my mom bought me a mouth guard and told me, you need to wear this every time you play, whether that's practice or games, so that your teeth stay safe. But being a 17-year-old boy, there were two thoughts that crossed my mind. First, mouth guards look kind of dumb, and I want to look cool. I didn't want my chances at being considered the cute goalie to be hindered by a big hunk of blue plastic sticking out of my mouth. And second, if you have teen boys, you know this very well, if my mom told me to do something, oftentimes I'd try to do the opposite. And so I would very conveniently forget my mouth guard at home or in my bag, or whatever other excuse I could come up with, just so I wouldn't have to wear it. And luckily for me, nothing bad ever happened because of it, and my braces came off without any significant soccer-related issues. However, why was I so determined to not wear my mouth guard? It wasn't bad for me. It probably actually would have been safer for me and better for me in the long run if I had, but why did I leave it behind? When I looked down the path I wanted to follow, when I looked down the path of wanting to be seen as cool or seen as the cute goalie over there, I knew that having a big hunk of blue plastic in my mouth would have hindered that goal. It would have kept me back from the path that I wanted to follow. It would have prevented me from becoming the person that I thought I needed to be. Welcome to Lakeside Church. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Jacob Bowder, and I am part of the team here at Lakeside. Uh, my special area of interest is the next-gen ministry. So from birth through high school, that's me. If you have a high schooler or a middle schooler from 6th to 12th, send them down to the Algoma Youth Club on Wednesday nights. We do lunch, or we do dinner, not lunch, games, a message. It's a great time. There's my plug. I'll get back to what I'm actually supposed to be talking about. So this morning, we're going to be talking about what happens when we encounter Christ and more importantly, what we have to leave behind in order to fully pursue God. And so if you want to follow along, we have a few different options. First of all, we use an app called the YouVersion Bible app every week here at Lakeside. You can download it for free on any app store, and then you'll go to the events tab from there. You can either turn on your location services or just search Lakeside Algoma, and we'll pop up, and you'll be able to follow along the verses there. Secondly, if you have a traditional paper Bible, we'll be reading from the book of Luke chapter 5. And if you don't have either, we have screens on both sides of myself. And if you're watching the stream, the words will be below me. Plenty of ways to follow along, but let's jump in. So we're picking up pretty early on in the Gospel of Luke. At this point, we're learning about the life of Jesus. And at this point, he had already begun his earthly ministry. He'd done some miracles. He had uh, healed different people. He'd rebuked demons. He'd preached in a bunch of different synagogues. 
And so he had a lot of followers, but he didn't have people who he would call his disciples. He had people who were interested in what he had to say, but not people who were bought into the mission and truly following him. And that's what we're picking up. So Jesus went to a town called Capernaum, and he began preaching. And while preaching there, the crowd kept growing and growing and growing to the point where it was almost impossible for Jesus to actually communicate with them all. And that's where we're jumping in. So let's read Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So as we already talked about, Jesus had begun to make a name for himself in the area. He caused a stir, and people wanted to listen to what he had to say. So Jesus is preaching at the Lake of Gennesaret, which is, at the, which is just a local name for the northwestern corner of the Sea of Galilee, which is a place we see over and over again throughout the New Testament. There were so many people trying to learn and hear what Christ had to say that they kept pushing him closer and closer to the shoreline and to the water until there was no more room. At this point, Jesus noticed that there were two boats, and the fishermen were already done for the day. They were cleaning their nets. They were getting ready to be done. And Jesus asked the owner of one of these ships, named Simon, to put his boat out from the shore a little bit so Jesus could preach from within the boat, and that way people could stand along the shore and hear what he had to say. And this Simon was the man whom we all know better by his other name, Peter. Jesus wanted everyone to be able to hear his message, but realized that the shore was at a maximum capacity, and no one else would be able to join in unless he changed his location. So he decided to preach from the boat. This would be the equivalent of if we ever reached the point in Lakeside history where our whole sanctuary is at standing room only, and Brian makes the choice to preach from the roof. That'd be a little crazy. Hopefully it's not icy and cold like today. But it would work and would accomplish the goal of making more space for people to hear the gospel. So let's continue in Luke 5, verses 4 through 7. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. When Jesus finished his message to the crowd, he told Simon Peter, let's go into the lake and let's fish. To Simon, this is a strange request. And Simon tells him so. He basically tells him, look, we were out all night. We were fishing, we were trying, we were casting. We didn't get anything. And we know this lake better than almost anyone. Clearly the fish must be somewhere else or sleeping or I don't know what they're doing. But because of who you are, I'll listen. I'll do what you tell me to do. Because remember, Simon Peter was a professional fisherman. This was his whole life. This was his identity. This was his profession. This was everything that everyone knew him to be. And this gives similar energy to when we see celebrities who portray uh, different civil servants, whether that's army or police or firemen on TV or movies, go to the news or go to people and try to act like they know what it's actually like. This is Jesus. Simon must be like, yeah, this Jesus guy, he might know a little bit about fishing from, you know, living by a lake, but he's not actually a fisherman. However, he also knew enough about Jesus to know that if Jesus tells him to do something, he should do it. To any bystander, to take the advice over Jesus, to take the advice of Jesus over his own would seem foolish. But Simon knew who Jesus was and decided to trust him. And so we see in the next verses that this was the right call. It says, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. 
So Simon and his boat crew signaled for the other boat to come over and help. They said, we have too many fish. We need help getting all these fish out of the water. And both boats filled up to the point that they began to sink. There were so many fish that there was no natural explanation for this many fish to be in one spot at one time. There were so many fish that the only cause could have been supernatural. The fact that there were so many fish in those boats caused the fishermen to be faced with the fact that they were encountering the Son of God himself. And what's the response? We see in verses 8 through 11, But when Simon Peter saw it, the fish, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So Simon Peter realizes what happened and falls down on his knees before Jesus, crying out, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. When faced with the magnitude and the fact that Jesus was truly the Messiah that he claimed to be, Simon had no choice but to worship. He was faced with the knowledge that he was in the presence of God and he was by no means worthy. When we encounter God, it should be our natural response to realize our unworthiness before him and yet worship him all the same. The other three disciples who are part of this story, who we learn more about as we go along in the Gospels, include Simon's brother Andrew, who was in Simon's boat, and then the other boat contained the disciples James and John. And all four of these men were equally in awe at the amount of the fish and at the power of Jesus. Jesus responds to Simon's cries with a simple word of reassurance, followed by a mission for those who follow Jesus. He said, do not be afraid, for from now on, you will be catching men. Do not be afraid. And fear should be our natural response when we realize how broken and how sinful and how unworthy we are before a glorious God. And yet Jesus says, do not be afraid. Why? Because from now on, you will be catching men. From now on, you will be my followers. From now on, you are forgiven. Verse 11 says, And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. When Peter, when Andrew, when James, when John saw what Jesus had done, and they realized who he was, and they recognized him for who he truly is, which is the Son of God, they comprehended the mission, they recognized their sinfulness, they returned to land, they left everything behind, and they followed him. When Jesus said, from now on, you will be catching men, he was not just referencing a general principle. Jesus was telling them several things. These include what I said earlier, that they were forgiven, that they were now his followers. But the wordplay is interesting to look at here. Because again, remember, these men were professional fishermen. That was their life. That was their identity. That's what everyone viewed them as. And yet, when they encountered Jesus, their whole lives changed. The wordplay here symbolizes a change in priority. Or more specifically for these first four disciples, a change in lifestyle, a change in profession, a complete change of identity. They went from just being fishermen to Jesus' fishers of men. They went from just catching fish to feed the town to make money to provide for people to going out, spreading the gospel to catch people and save them from their sins. When we become believers, our whole personhood transforms. 
We go from darkness to light. We go from death to life. We go from sin to sanctification. We go from lost to found. We go from who we were before we encountered Christ to who we are in Christ, which is the new creation. Think back to when you first encountered God. What was your response? How did you feel when you realized your faults? How did you feel when you realized your sinfulness? How did you feel when you compared who you are to who God is? And more importantly, what about your life and what about your identity changed when you placed your trust and hope in Jesus? The majority of people, we don't have to leave everything behind to follow Jesus as these disciples did. But we all know that there's a part of ourselves that either did or still does not line up with who Jesus calls us to be and thus must be left behind in order to fully pursue Jesus. Whether this is a certain habit, a certain friend, a certain way of living that you've grown adjusted to, it's not an easy task for us to leave that behind, even if it's just one small little thing. And so it's definitely not an easy ask of Jesus to ask these first disciples to leave everything. But there's an important fact to remember. And this is something that I talked about with the youth group just a few weeks back. When placed against each other, which do you prefer? Following Jesus, experiencing hope, finding new life, eternity in heaven, and a general relationship with God? Or continuing to follow your own passions, continuing to follow your own desires, following damaging, sinful temptations, which only lead to darkness and ruin. When you compare the two, who do you pick, Jesus or sin? And the disciples here exhibited an important principle. We can only walk down one path at a time. When I talked about a similar concept at youth a couple weeks ago, I explained it as such. I live in Luxembourg. If I want to go to Algoma, I probably shouldn't be heading west to Green Bay. I can't be heading both east and west at the same time. You cannot walk both in the darkness and the light. These paths are mutually exclusive. When you decide to follow Jesus, you're deciding to leave the path of darkness behind and begin to pursue the path of light. When you decide to follow Jesus, you're deciding to walk in the path of the light regardless of anything else. And this story of the first disciples is mirrored in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4. And I really like how they end their description. It's a lot shorter version, but I think that this two verses is really important to look at. Matthew 4, verses 19 through 20 says, And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Follow my instructions, and you will be a Christian able to go out, share the gospel, share the good news with those around you, and find more people who want to follow you on the path of light. Well, let's look closer at verse 20. Immediately after the call of Christ, immediately, it says, they left their nets and followed him. And Luke, it simply says they left everything and followed him, which is obviously more absolute, but almost too general of a statement for us to grasp. Like, I could say I left everything behind, but what does that mean? And so how Matthew phrases this response is really interesting. Immediately they left their nets, followed him. For the disciples, this meant leaving their old lives behind. They were fishermen. Their nets symbolized their way of living. It symbolized how they made money. It symbolized their whole place in society. 
but they left their nets to follow Jesus. So consider for yourself, what is your net? What is the specific thing or action that you need to leave behind in in order to either begin your walk with Jesus or strengthen your pursuit of him? For the disciple, the act of leaving their nets behind symbolized completely changing their life, completely changing everything they knew, going down the path of lightness, leaving everything behind. And the analogy of leaving a net should not be lost on you. Nets are designed to catch and hold things. They're designed to trap things so that us humans can use it for whatever we want, whether that's food or supplies or uh, whatever. And we all have nets in our lives. We all have things that catch us and attempt to prevent us from fully following God. We all have things that catch us and attempt to hold us and keep us from living a life pleasing to him. For us, some it could be a friend, it could be a substance, or it could be an activity carried out when you think no one's looking. And not only are these nets something to just be left behind, like in the book Pilgrim's Progress. It's not just dropping your burden and running away. It's not just dropping a heavy rock. These nets are something that will try to hold on and not let you go. These nets are something that will prevent you from following Jesus, and you're going to have to struggle to break free from Imagine walking through a big cobweb. It's going to take a long time and a lot of effort to get all that off of you. It's not just a quick wipe, and it's gone. It sticks. It's gross. You might have a dead fly on your arm somewhere. And you're going to have to struggle to get all that off. So what is your net that you need to break free from and leave behind in 2023? We're going to continue back in Luke 5. We're going to skip a couple of verses. We're going to verse 27. Through 29. After this, he, Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at a table with them. So between calling the first disciples and this encounter with Levi, who we better know as Matthew, Jesus performed two miracles, including healing a leper and healing a paralyzed man who was lowered through a roof. If you haven't heard those stories before, look them up after the service. They're great stories, and it's Sunday, so what else are you doing? Um, But what we just read introduces us to a man, like I said, named Levi, who we all better know as Matthew, who was one of the gospel writers. And Levi was a tax collector. This was generally a career that made you kind of a societal outcast. It made people look down on you because people thought you were greedy, corrupt, and stealing. A lot of tax collectors back in these days, they'd be collecting taxes for Rome, but always take a little bit more than they needed. It'd be like going to Walmart, buying something for $100, and the lady at the cash register says, give me 20% of tax, and then sticks that other 10% in their pocket. And we don't know if Levi was like this, but we know this was the general thought about tax collectors. And so Levi was actively working at his tax booth, actively in front of people, actively in a public place, as this person thought of as a corrupt and greedy outcast when Jesus came up to him. I wish we could see more of their interaction. But Luke did not consider the rest of this conversation to be important in the overall message of the gospel. We can all assume that Levi knew who Jesus was, because again, this is still in Capernaum. This is still where Jesus preached from boats. Levi would have known who this guy was who had to go preach from a boat because he got pushed into the water. And so when Jesus tells Levi, follow me, Levi knows enough about him to leave everything behind and follow Jesus. In celebration and honor of Jesus, Levi decides to throw a huge feast at his house, declaring, I know this guy named Jesus, and I'm following him. Come and dine and learn about him with me at my house. Not just in a public place, 
at my house. Because it was Levi showing the world that he believed in Jesus. He believed in the mission of the gospel, and he was going to follow him regardless of who knew it. Because of Levi's profession, most of his friends and close associates would have been other similar social outcasts, whether they were other tax collectors or people just looked down on by the Jewish leaders and Pharisees. And so these were the guests at Levi's feasts. And so Jesus was spending time around this crowd, and it raised a few eyebrows from the Jewish leaders of the day. Let's read on. Verses 30 through 32. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. The Pharisees began to complain to Jesus' disciples, why is Jesus taking you to just go casually hang out with these sinners, with these undesirables? Because remember, eating and drinking back then, just as it is now, is a very casual environment. It's a way for us to get to know people. How many first dates are at a place for dinner? How many times when you're catching up with a friend or family that you haven't seen in a while do you go out to get pizza or do you go out to get burgers? Eating together is a casual environment done to create connection on a personal level. So for Jesus and his disciples to be dining with these tax collectors and sinners, it's a sign of acceptance, community, and even some level of friendship. It's interesting how the Pharisees phrased those who were invited to the dinner. It wasn't the tax collectors and the sinners. It was the tax collectors and sinners. They weren't separate groups of people to the Pharisees. According to them, everyone at those tables, besides Jesus and maybe some of his disciples, depending on which one you asked, the only important factor in their identity was that the Pharisees viewed them as sinners. The Pharisees simply called them all sinners. They couldn't understand why Jesus would be casually dining with all these people who would who in their mind were doing bad things, or who are outcasts, or who are sinners, who are unrighteous, undesirable people. And Jesus responds, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. Those who are healthy don't need a doctor. Only sick people need doctors. Jesus is using parallelism here to make his point clear. He's comparing the healthy people to those who consider themselves to be righteous already and the sick to those who know that they are sinners. But for those of us who spend time in the church or spend time in the Bible, whether it's the Old or the New Testament, if there's one thing about the human condition that we all know, it's that we're all sinners. The only righteous person who ever walked this earth was Jesus. We're all sinners. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if everyone's a sinner, then who are these righteous or healthy people that Jesus is talking about? Jesus is saying here that he isn't here for people who are prideful and think they don't need forgiveness. Jesus isn't here for the people who think they don't need him. You don't go to the hospital if you don't realize you need help. It doesn't matter if you're healthy or sick if you don't recognize your illness. Jesus came for everyone, but before everyone can come to him, they have to recognize their sickness. They have to recognize their sins. And as Simon Peter did, they have to fall to their knees, saying, depart from me, O God, for I am a sinner. And once the sick recognize their need for a doctor, they need to follow through. You can't just recognize that you're sick, and that's the end of the story. 
If I fell down and broke my leg, I could be like, oh, leg's broken. But if I don't do anything about it, it's not going to get better. It might get worse. When you realize you're sick, there's two things you do. You have to go to the doctor, and you have to follow their instructions. If I went to a doctor and they gave you some medicine, and I just set it under the shelf and did nothing with it, nothing would change. I'd stay sick. I might get worse. The whole visit would be pointless. I'd just be throwing money at people, which I don't have money to throw. So if you know you have a problem, even if you go to the doctor, if you don't take the steps that they prescribe, you won't get better. You'll just keep getting sicker. So once the sinner recognizes their sins, once we recognize our sins and our need for a Savior, we need to follow through. We need to follow Jesus and leave behind our old ways. We need to follow Jesus and leave behind our nets. I have a lot of books on my shelf at home, and my wife claims that I never use them. Here's proof that I do. In the New American Commentary on Luke by Robert Stein, he wrote the following on this passage that we just read. Luke reminded us that the call of Jesus was addressed to the outcasts. Jesus came for sinners and for the lost. Those who falsely think they are healthy and righteous will reject Jesus' message, but since his message openly challenges and refutes this false assumption of well-being, the gospel cannot be ignored. It will, be, it will meet hostile resistance, as this account we just read shows. And then he goes on to quote C.S. Lewis, so we're kind of three steps down the quote line here. C.S. Lewis once wrote, Christianity tells people to repent and promises them forgiveness. It has nothing, as far as I know, to say to people who do not know they have done anything to repent of and who do not feel that they need any forgiveness. Yet to those who see and acknowledge their own unrighteousness before God, the gospel offers forgiveness and blessing. The gospel offers forgiveness and blessing to those who see their unrighteousness and come to God. So you see what Jesus is saying here and what Luke recorded and what then Stein and C.S. Lewis both commented on was that for us to receive this gift of forgiveness, to receive salvation in Jesus Christ, we first have to realize that, as one of my friends at Bible college put it, we're all just dirty little sinners in need of a Savior. We're all unrighteous. We're all unworthy. And we need Jesus. We need to recognize our unrighteousness and accept the futility of our own efforts to save ourselves. And then and only then, when we call upon Jesus, when we recognize our sinfulness, when we accept our need for a greater Savior, can we come to believe in Jesus and follow him. But not only do we believe, and then that's the end of the story. This isn't a fairy tale where there's a wedding and then it's the end. We have to follow him. We have to leave our boats. We have to leave our nets. We have to leave our tax booth and follow him with everything that we have. The fact of it being New Year's Eve is not lost on me. This is a weekend that's generally filled with promises and hope for change or uh, gym memberships or diet plans or any number of forgiveness or any other New Year's Eve change promise. Every gym owner loves this time of year. They'll get hundreds of new sign-ups. Maybe next week there'll still be 10 people coming, but everyone's not going to cancel their membership because they feel too guilty to go in. So instead of making a New Year's resolution about something superficial, I propose that you make a New Year's resolution about something that has eternal consequences. Think back over 2023. Think back over your whole life. What stands out to you? Is there something that sticks out that you wish you could go back and change? 
Or there's something that sticks out to you is clearly holding you back from who God designed you to be. What do you recognize to be holding you back? And what are you doing that goes against God's desires for you, but you keep doing it anyway? What cycle of sin are you stuck in? And for the unbelievers, what is preventing you from believing in Christ? We're coming out of the season of Christmas. Everywhere we look, we see a manger or some sign of Christmas, whether it's trees or lights or way too much wrapping paper. We just learned about Jesus being born so he could live a sinless life, die on the cross, be born again three days, or rise again, not born again, three days later, to take away the penalty for the sins of everyone who follows him. So for the unbelievers, what's preventing you from believing in that child that was born to live a perfect life? If you only remember one thing from this morning, remember this. No matter what you've done, what net you're caught in, who you are, there is hope. All you need to do is recognize your sinfulness, recognize your need for a Savior, and follow Jesus. Leave that path of darkness behind and follow him with everything you have. I'm not saying you need to leave everything behind. I'm not saying that you have to go become a traveling street corner preacher who's wearing a big cardboard box. If you do, awesome. But I know I'm not called to live that way. Most of us are not called to live in such extreme conditions where we have to leave literally everything behind. What we are called to leave behind is our idolization of ourselves, where we view our desires and our sins as more important than God. What we leave behind is the idea that what we want is always best for us, regardless of what his word says. What we leave behind is the idea that we are good enough in exchange for the fact that only Christ is good enough. As we wrap up here, I want to remind you that no matter who you are and no matter what you've done, Christ is willing and able to save you from your sins. As long as you recognize your sinfulness, ask for forgiveness, and follow him with everything. In this new year, discover what net is keeping you from living a life fully devoted to God and leave it behind. Discover what's causing you to stumble or discover what's holding you back from being the person that God designed you to be. Or for the unbelievers, discover what's preventing you from diving headfirst into following Jesus. Because as we read in the above examples of the disciples, following Jesus requires sacrifice and devotion. The Apostle Luke, who, again, whose gospel we just read from, he understood that the call to follow Jesus was not one of just half-hearted loyalty like being a fan. There's a lot of things that I'm a fan of, but I don't follow them. Even I can admit recent Marvel movies are bad. But the call to follow Jesus is a state of continual and complete dedication to the lifestyle and mission fit for a Christian. Live in such a way that those around you cannot ignore the gospel. Live in such a way that everyone around you can feel and see the love of God through you and live in such a way that on the day we stand before the throne of God, you'll hear those craved words, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this wonderful Christmas season we're coming out of. Thank you for all that you've done for us and reminding us why we're here. Thank you for reminding us of who your son is and why he was born all those years ago. I pray that as we enter into the new year, that you'll give us strength to pursue you more fully. I pray that you'll give us the resolve to leave behind our nets that are holding us back. 
I pray that you'd remind us that you're all that matters. I pray you give us people around us who can support us in our pursuit of the path of light and point us away from the path of dark. I pray that you'd remind us of the everlasting hope that we have because of your son. I pray that as we leave this place today, that we be encouraged to live according to your word, regardless of what we want, regardless of what we've done. We'll be able to love you more fully and follow you completely. In your name.